0: How are we doing, Creek Church? That's the universal sign for doing well, is woo! <laughs> nice job. I'm glad to be here. I'm excited about the opportunity to uh, open the Bible with you uh, this uh, morning. Excited about uh, what God is doing at the Creek Church and all of its impact, not only just here in London, but also I understand that I'm also uh, preaching today to uh, Somerset and also to Williamsburg, and I'm grateful to be, uh, to be uh, able, hopefully, to encourage all of us from God's Word this morning. So if you have a Bible, take it and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along there. But the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. And uh, I'm excited this morning to be with my dear friend, uh, Pastor Trevor, and he's, he's underselling it in terms of the value of uh, that he plays in my own life and uh and our friendship i i'm so grateful uh, to uh to, to god for for uh, men like this and families like his that just provide a, a, a shot in the arm measure of encouragement uh at the appropriate time and the appropriate place um and i'm so thankful for him i, I gotta be honest though he kind of undersold a little bit the role that i had in terms of giving him advice because i remember about 15 years ago giving him some advice not to move back to Eastern Kentucky and to pastor a little church that was, you know, at that time, just a few dozen people. I remember telling them, that's not a good idea. Uh, man. you don't want to do that. You want to stay in a big city like Atlanta where we were at the time. And here we are 15 years later and 1800 baptisms later and three campuses later, and God's using the Creek Church to reach the world for Christ. And so congratulations, Trevor, on ignoring my advice. That's fantastic. Praise God for that. Amen. God called me out of the South. I am uh, from Atlanta, Georgia, and he called me to, uh, over the course of my ministry in life, to New York City, the largest city in the United States of America, and I believe the most influential city in the world for the purpose of making disciples and multiplying churches. And your church at the Creek has been an enormous asset to me, um, just as you guys have prayed through and sought God about how to develop uh, new churches and plant new campuses. And I'm excited to report to you that Salem Church, my 115-year-old ethnic Norwegian church, now it's 30 to 40 different nationalities across our, uh, our congregation. We'll be sending our first campus out in uh, early August of this year to a neighborhood in our borough of New York City that has 40,000 residents and one evangelical church. 40,000. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. So, we are very excited about that and covet your prayers. And we've learned a lot uh, from your team here as I've been invited down, and had a chance to sit in on meetings, and, and of course, be friends with your pastor. So, just realize the impact you're making is not just, I know you have this campaign, Give Us Kentucky, uh, but God, in some small way, is also giving you other places as you set, uh, set the tone and bless uh, so many ministries and pastors like myself. So, I'm thankful for you. At Salem, we've been in a series these last few weeks. It's called The Movement, A Journey with Theophilus. I don't know if you know this, but two of the largest books of your New Testament, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, were written by the same person. His name was Luke. He was a physician. He was someone who accumulated documents and information in order to communicate uh, to a Roman official named Theophilus all the things pertaining to the life, the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, as well as the early church and the movement in the book of Acts. The book of Luke and the book of Acts were written by a man named Luke to a man named Theophilus describing what we've entitled at Salem lately, the movement called the local church. And over the course of the last several weeks, we've been looking at key elements of this movement called the church. And we've talked about the foundation of the church and the direction of the church and the purpose of the church. And this morning, I want to bring a message to you entitled, The Power of the Movement. The power of the movement. Where does this movement called the church get its power? And to start this morning, what I'd like to do is have a chance to have a little story time with you. That'd be okay. I want to sit here on this little chair and I want to read you a story, a story with which you are familiar, but hopefully it'll give you a new perspective on it as well. See, over 2,000 years ago, I want to take you back. Mentally go back with me. 2,000 years. I I want you to go back to the ancient city of Jerusalem in the nation of Israel. And in Jerusalem, 2,000 years ago, there are two power structures. There's first the local religious power structure, that would be the Jewish leadership, and then more nationally, there's the reigning superpower of the day that is occupying Jerusalem at this time, that would be the Roman government. So Israel is under the local control of the Jewish leadership and over the global control of the Roman Empire. At this time, taxes were high, Soldiers were everywhere, and it was a very, very difficult time for Jerusalem and for that part of the world at that time. It was in this context that a Jewish carpenter's wife from Nazareth gave birth to a baby boy named Jesus. Now, he began to grow up and started teaching about a kingdom that was not of this world. He spoke in parables that few could understand, and he insisted that his followers love God and love people, including those Roman soldiers who were brutal and who were dangerous. Over the course of time, he developed quite a significant following. There were several gatherings that that saw over 20,000 people come and hear him teach and were excited about being followers of Jesus Christ. However, his family thought that he had lost his mind. And in the process, he offended practically everybody who listened to him. And after only three years of ministry and teaching, Jesus was arrested, he was tried, and he was executed by the Roman government at the behest of the Jewish leadership. Even though he was extremely popular, and even though there were a lot of people who would identify themselves with his teaching, you had to figure when he died on the cross, his movement was over. Or was it? Or was it? You see, here's where the story gets really, really strange. After his execution, Jesus' followers, the, mainly the, the eleven, were understandably discouraged as well as terrified for their own lives. Why? Well, they killed Jesus, then they may kill us as well. So they were hiding out in closed doors, in dark rooms, and trying to be inconspicuous because they were terrified and because they were discouraged. They were afraid for their lives, they didn't want to be confronted by the Jews or the Romans until all of a sudden they weren't. They weren't what? They weren't terrified. They weren't discouraged. They weren't hiding anymore. All of a sudden, they weren't. Three days after Jesus' execution, they began declaring that Jesus rose from the dead. They said they'd seen him. They said they'd eaten with him. They said they'd even touched him and his body. Within weeks, hundreds and hundreds, even thousands of people within walking distance of where Jesus had been buried, they believed in this resurrection as well. And Before long, Jerusalem was filled to the brim with Jesus' followers who believed he was alive back from the dead. Well, you can imagine how this sat with the Jewish leadership. They didn't like it at all. Neither did the Romans either. And so the Jews used their considerable influence, and the prideful Romans, they leveraged their enormous power to shut this movement down. They even killed some of the original followers of Jesus. And when that happened, many of the other followers began to scatter. They were running for their lives. They were leaving Jerusalem by the hundreds and by the thousands, scattering across the world. So now, now, now the movement was over. They killed the leader. They killed some of the original followers. Everybody else is on the run. So now the movement is over. Or is it? (laughs) See that if this had been like the dozen or so other uprisings that occurred during that same period of time, it would have been nothing more than a, a blip on the radar of history. But this movement was different. This movement was different. Those followers who were scattered, you know, they went everywhere telling everyone they met that God had done something unique in their generation. They went everywhere they went, everywhere they went, they went telling everybody they ran into that God had sent his son to die for the sins of the world and raised him from the dead three days later. No, no, this movement, it wasn't over. It was just getting started. It was just getting started. Where are we at today? Where's this movement at today? Well, today... The Roman Empire has been gone for 1500 years. It's no no longer a player on the world stage. Today, the Jewish ancient worship system is gone. The temple was destroyed in 70 AD. It's never been rebuilt. And ancient Judaism, as it was in Jesus' day, has never existed since. But that little movement that the Jewish power structure and the Roman power structure tried to stamp out and keep from going anywhere, today, 2,000 years later, over one-third of the world's population claim a faith in the crucified, risen Jesus Christ of Nazareth. We're talking 2,000 years later, Caesar is dead, and the Jewish temple is destroyed, but Jesus is worshiped on every single continent of the planet. How's that even possible? How is it even possible that Rome is gone and and the temple is destroyed, but that today, 2,000 years later, thousands of miles away from where it started, we've gathered in a room like this and they're gathering in rooms in Somerset and Williamsburg, all over this part of Kentucky and back in my home city of New York City, Salem Church is gathering billions around the world. How is it possible that Rome is destroyed and Caesar is dead and the temple has been destroyed, but the followers of Jesus and the movement he started is stronger than How's it possible? I'll tell you how it's possible. And for the next few minutes, I'm going to unpack this statement, but it is possible because why? Because the church is a movement with unstoppable power. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Because Jesus is alive. Celebrate that with me this morning. Amen. Now, this series that we're in at Salem, we're going to pick up in, in, in the book of Luke, chapter 24. And we're about to read of two people, two people that are on a traveling on a trip. They're on the road to Emmaus. They're leaving Jerusalem, and they're walking home to Emmaus, about seven miles away. So they're on a seven-mile walk. These two individuals, presumably your husband and wife, and they're having a conversation about everything they've just seen. Well, what have they just seen? Well, in Jerusalem, they've just witnessed Jesus die on the cross. He's been crucified. And they were followers of Jesus. They were disciples of Jesus. They believed in Jesus. They were, they were excited about what Jesus was teaching and doing, but they are now devastated over what they've seen. As they walk along the road headed home, somebody comes to walk beside them. This individual comes to walk beside them and it begins to discuss some of the things they're concerned about. And over the course of their conversation, this person changes their lives forever. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 24 and verse number 13. In my home church in, in, in New York, we normally ask everyone to stand when we read our primary text. So if you'll humor me, I'd appreciate it. Would you stand with me now, out of respect for the reading of God's word? Luke 24, we're going to look at verses 13 through 35 together. The scripture says that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with one another about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk, as they stood still looking sad? Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know what has happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, word before God and all the people and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women in our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them, all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village which they they were going and he acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly saying, stay with us for it is toward the evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. While he was at the table, he took bread and blessed them, blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. Lord, we thank you for your word and thank you for this journey that Cleopas and his wife were on. Thank you for the fact that Jesus showed up and changed their lives forever. I pray in a similar fashion that Jesus this morning would change the lives of many as we study your word. And it's in your name we pray. Amen and amen. You can be seated. Thank you. This morning I want to talk to you about the power of the movement with the main idea that the church is a movement with unstoppable power because Jesus is alive. And this morning in these few verses we just read a moment ago, you're gonna notice three particular emotions, three particular perspectives that Jesus responds to as he converses with Cleopas and his spouse. The first is this. I want you to notice in the first few verses is that for the confused, Jesus is present. For the confused, Jesus is present. These individuals walking from Jerusalem back to Emmaus, they were devastated. Absolutely devastated. Why? Because over the last several years, they had gotten their hopes very high. And they were believing that Jesus was the one who was to redeem Israel. That's an important word, that word redeem. They thought that Jesus was going to redeem Israel. And they were so excited about all that was happening around Jesus with his disciples and the teaching and the miracles and all the things they saw. But now, Believing that Jesus was the Messiah, they're wrestling with this question what kind of Messiah gets himself arrested, tried, and crucified by the Roman leadership? No, 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 no. He could not possibly be the Messiah. There's no way he's the Messiah. Jesus was nothing more than a disappointing delusion. They were terribly confused. Everybody say, confused. Confused. They were confused. Terribly, terribly confused. i reminded of a, of a confused man one time I heard about, kind of a goofy story, but he had gone to a funeral home, to a visitation, and as he was there, he had had a few drinks before he arrived, and he brought his flask in and was sipping on that as he was walking around the funeral home, and he'd had a little bit too much, and he ended up passing out drunk in one of the chairs in the visitation of the funeral home. Well, the funeral home director couldn't handle that. Now, that can't happen. And so he needed to get this passed out drunk out of his parlor. And so he had some of his staff take the man from the public area of the parlor and took him into the back so he could sleep it off. But when they got to the back with the man's, you know, limp, passed out body, they didn't have anywhere to lay him except into an empty casket. <laughs> so they took this old passed out drunk and they laid him out in an empty casket for him to sleep it off. And they left. When the, when the man woke up and saw his surroundings, he was terribly confused. And he asked himself two questions. He says, number one, if I'm alive, why am I in this casket? And number two, if I am dead, why do I have to go to the bathroom? <laughs> <laughs> Cleopas and his wife were desperately confused, okay? So if he's not the Messiah, how did Jesus perform the miracles he performed? How did he raise Lazarus from the dead? How did he heal, feed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish? How did he, how did he make Bartimaeus's eyes see again? If he wasn't the Messiah, how did he do the things he did? But if he is the Messiah, why is he dead? If he is the one promised the Old Testament, then why is he in a tomb? If he is the son of God, then how in the world does the son of God get himself crucified by the Roman authorities at the behest of the Jewish leadership? The confusion centered around a word called "redeem." That word redeem, the Old Testament galal and the New Testament lutru means to set something free. They thought Jesus would be the one to set Israel free, but how could he set Israel free if he's the one that's in the tomb, he's been crucified and he's off the scene. Trent Butler notes, the disciples saw in Jesus, the one who would bring a new exodus and free the nation from its Roman captors. Instead, Jesus proved to be something much more than that, the redeemer who freed them from sin and death. But at this point, the two on the road to Emmaus had absolutely no idea of any of this. Warren Wiersbe encompassed this thought in his commentary when he said these were discouraged and disappointed. Why? Because God did not do what they wanted him to do. Have you ever been there? You ever been in a situation where God didn't do what you wanted him to do? Found yourself confused? God, I thought it would glorify you for my son to repent and return to me and to his faith. But he seems to run even farther. God, I thought it would glorify you if I get healed of this sickness and don't have to battle the flesh in this way anymore. God, I thought it would, it would, I, th- I thought it would glorify you and be good for me if you would restore my marriage. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where God hasn't done what you wanted him to do and you are confused? I've been there. Anybody else? That's where they were. Discouraged and disillusioned because God did not do what they wanted them to do. What's the word for the Confused. For the confused, the scripture says Jesus is present. He draws near. Psalm 145, verse 18 says, the Lord is near to all those who call upon him. So here's the question for the confused in the room. You're confused about Jesus. You're confused about your life. You're confused about church. You're confused about your purpose. You're confused about who to marry, where to go to school, what kind of career to have. You're confused about what exactly to do about these problems that you have. You're confused. Here's the invitation for the confused. The invitation to the confused is to draw near to God and let God draw near to you. It's to allow God to come close to you and allow his presence to touch and overwhelm you. Number two the confused. Secondly, let me show you the willing. For the willing, Jesus will clarify. Do you see the journey with with, with those on the road beginning with confusion? Jesus now, because they were willing, begins to open the scriptures and encourage them. You know what I love about this passage? I love the fact that Jesus doesn't run from their doubts. Jesus doesn't just run away from, you know, he could have snuck up next to them and listened to their conversation. Jesus could have heard them doubting him and doubting his plan and doubting God and You know, referring to him as a delusion and confusion and Jesus could have heard their conversation and said, okay, well, they're not true believers. I'm walking away from them. I'm going to go find some people that really do believe in my plan. You know, we live in a culture that says what? That says, well, if you're not with me on my worst day, you have no right to be with me on my best day, right? That's the culture we live in. You know, it's the idea of what have you done for me lately? The beautiful thing about Jesus is in the midst of their doubts, what does Jesus do? Jesus draws closer to them in the midst of their confusion and doubt. And he draws near to them, they ask them a question. The question is this, are you willing? In their case, were they willing to hear what the scripture said? Were they willing to open their minds and hearts to the truth of the gospel? Were they willing, were they willing to hear from God? And they were. Verses 25 through 29 tell us that Jesus lovingly confronts them and what does he do? He turns their attention to the Old Testament. He said, let's go take a look at the scriptures. You think there's no way a Messiah could possibly get himself crucified. You think there's no way because Jesus died on the cross, because of all that he went through, there's no way he's the actual Messiah. Okay, well, let's, let's, let's test that theory. Let's go to the Old Testament and find out if indeed the Messiah promised by God is actually not going to suffer whatsoever. Jesus was walking in through the Scripture, and he proved to them how the crucifixion was not a catastrophic event proving that he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. That the crucifixion was the was the foundational event that was proven that he was the Messiah. I wonder where he took him. I, I love to study the Old Testament, it's definitely the, especially the especially the the prophecies about Jesus. I, I wonder if Jesus took him back to Genesis three. You think? Back in Genesis 3, we've just seen the fall of man into sin. We've just seen how, how the serpent has tempted Adam and Eve and they find their way into, the, into the eating of that fruit In that moment sin enters the world. We're, we're going back to the worst chapter in all the Bible. And in Genesis chapter 3, we even have a hint of hope in the worst chapter in all the Bible. See, in the conversation that God is having with the serpent, the conversation God's having with the devil, he makes a a bold statement in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, the second part. What he says is he, talking about the Messiah, he, you see it here, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So what he's telling the serpent is, yes, the Messiah is going to bruise your head, but in the process, you're going to bruise his heel. What God is saying to the serpent is that I'm going to send one who's going to undo all this mess that you've created. And the way it's going to happen is, is, that you're going to strike a blow. You're going to injure him, but that will not be the end of him because he is not only going to be injured, but he actually is going to rise again. And in the process going to destroy everything you are and everything you stand for. I can imagine Jesus walking along the road with Cleopas and Mrs. Cleopas <laughs> And as they're walking along the road, he's saying, but did you remember what God said to the serpent in Genesis three fifteen? How the serpent would bruise the heel of the Messiah. I wonder if Jesus in his conversation was talking and taking him back to Isaiah 53, the messianic prophecy. And in the context of that conversation, he's quoting from Isaiah 53 in verse five when he says, but he was pierced for our transgressions he was crushed for our iniquities. Now, now listen, Cleopas and Miss Cleopas, you think that the Messiah couldn't possibly suffer, but do you remember what the prophecy said? That upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace and with his wounds, with his wounds, we are healed. Have you ever considered Psalm 122, the Messianic Psalm, or excuse me, Psalm 22, verse 16, the Messianic Psalm, and it says this, it says, for dogs encompass me, and what happens? A company of evildoers encircles me. What have they done? They have pierced my hands and my feet. Could you just see him walking along the road? And they don't know it's Jesus. They don't know they're talking to Jesus. They just think they're talking to another person interested in what's been going on. And he starts bringing up, you know what, you think that the suffering of Jesus proves he wasn't the Messiah. Has it ever occurred to you that the suffering of Jesus was exactly what God had planned for his Messiah? Does it occur to you that this is exactly what God had in mind for the Messiah, that he would suffer and bleed and die? See, these are just a few of the verses, a few of the verses that the Old Testament gives us, telling us from the law and the prophets that Jesus could have expounded upon, that he, Jesus could have explained to them about how God's plan was not defeated. These verses illustrate that the movement would not be stopped. It wouldn't be stopped by the Romans. It would not be stopped by the Jews. It certainly would be stopped by the cross. Like these travelers, you may be confused about your life. You may be confused about your future, about your past, and about this church. But I want you to know, for the confused, Jesus is present. Secondly, for the willing, Jesus will clarify. Jesus will clarify. Then thirdly, I wanna finish with this, for the convinced, Jesus empowers. For the convinced, Jesus empowers. We saw it a moment ago, we read through the text, and that was what? Well, as Jesus was there in the home, scripture says that he broke bread with them, And their eyes were opened and they realized this is Jesus. This is the one who was crucified. This is the one who what we've been following for all these years. This is the one whom God foretold in the Old Testament would come and be his son. Listen, their eyes were open and their lives were never the same. And what happened, whenever their eyes were open, the Bible says that Jesus appeared to them. They became aware and convinced of his resurrection. And about that same time, the Bible says that he was taken from them. He vanished from their sight. And what does the Bible say? It says that Cleopas and his wife, that moment at that hour, got up and ran back to Jerusalem. Remember how far it was? It was 7,000 7, no, 7, 7 miles. They ran seven miles back up the hill into Jerusalem to find the disciples to go to that room and to tell them what they had seen and what they had heard. Seven miles at night, a treacherous road that was dangerous. Nobody ever traveled at night and nobody ever traveled alone. That's exactly what they did. Why? Because they've become convinced. It's the common experience. Someone's confused, but they're willing, and then they become convinced. This is what happened to the disciple named Thomas. This summer, I'm doing a series at Salem Church called The Twelve, and we're walking through the, di- the stories of the various disciples and the, the apostles of the New Testament. And in this particular series, we're gonna study Thomas. Now, Thomas gets a bad rap. Thomas is known as what? Doubting Thomas, right? That's what we know about Thomas, he doubted, right? He was a doubting person. Well, let's look at that doubt once again. In, in John chapter 20, we find the story of Thomas's doubt. Look at it in verse 24. The scripture says, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. So Thomas wasn't there, but his buddies were telling him he's alive. But Thomas, the scripture says, but Thomas said to them, unless I see his hand in his hands, the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Confused, right? I want to believe, but the cross. I want to embrace, but the cross. I want to rejoice, but the cross. What he had seen and what he had experienced was so hard, what was so difficult for him to process that even the words of his best friends were not going to convince him that Jesus was alive. He needed to experience it for himself. The scripture says, eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said what? Peace be with you year. Thomas was confused. Where was Jesus? Present. Jesus drew near to Thomas in the midst of his confusion. Secondly, Thomas was willing. Jesus said, hey, Thomas, listen, put your fingers here and see my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas was willing. What happened? Jesus brought clarity. And then finally what happens is Thomas was convinced in verse 28 Thomas answered him, said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. So Thomas was confused. Jesus was present. Thomas was willing. Jesus clarified. And then finally, Thomas was convinced and Jesus empowered him. What happened to Thomas? Do you know know what happened to Thomas, the disciple named Thomas? The church history tells us that Thomas was the disciple that took the gospel to the subcontinent of India that he actually took the gospel to what is now the second most populous nation on the planet. Thomas took the gospel down there, and the church history also tells us that there in India, Thomas gave his life as a martyr for the faith. You know, 11 of the 12 disciples died a martyr's death. John lived well into his 90s, but yet was uh, exiled to Patmos and had dealt with all kinds of suffering and all kinds of, of tumultuous stuff. He'd been persecuted heavily. But most of your disciples died a martyr's death, and my question is this. Okay, how does a guy like Thomas go from being a doubter Go from being cowardly, faithless, unwilling to believe, unwilling to listen to his friends tell him about the resurrection of Jesus. How does Thomas go from being faithless, discouraged, disappointed, and completely non-believing to now taking the gospel to the subcontinent of, of India and there in that continent giving his very life for Jesus Christ. How does it go from a faithless, discouraged, doubting man to a bold proclaimer of the gospel of Jesus Christ? What changed about Thomas? Here it is, he became convinced that Jesus was alive. He became convinced that Jesus was alive. And if Jesus is alive, he can be trusted. And if Jesus is alive, I can share his message across the globe because Jesus is alive. I can go anywhere he calls me to go, do anything he calls me to do because I am following a risen Savior who is alive. Same thing for Cleopas and his wife. How do they go from being despondent and discouraged and upset and fearful on that road walking along the way to later on that very night boldly getting up from their table and running back the seven miles to Jerusalem to declare to the disciples, yes, Jesus has been resurrected indeed. How do they go from despondent and discouraged disciples to bold proclaimers of God's truth? They do it because they have been convinced that Jesus is alive. How are the disciples who are hiding in back rooms and dark closets, terrified for their lives, afraid the Jews will point them out, or afraid the Romans will find them out? How do they go from being despondent, discouraged disciples to boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Here's the difference. It's not that they had turned over a new leaf. It's not that their personalities changed. It's that they went from being unconvinced that Jesus was alive to being convinced that Jesus is alive, and it changed everything. Hey, Creek Church, are you convinced that Jesus Jesus is alive. Are you convinced? It changes everything. If we have nothing but a dead faith in a crucified Savior who gave his life for us, if that's all we have, we have no power. We have no authority. We have no life change. But if we serve a Savior who was dead and is now alive and is empowering his church, then that means that the church is a movement with unstoppable power because Jesus is alive. We can attempt anything for his glory. We can attempt anything for his gospel. And I'm excited about what you're attempting for that as well. In New York, we're committed to making disciples and multiplying churches. And I love the fact, I love the fact that you guys are looking at your state and saying, give us Kentucky. If Jesus is still dead, you ain't gonna take Kentucky. But because Jesus is alive and you're a part of this movement, that has unstoppable power because Jesus is alive, I believe God's gonna give you the desires of your heart they are in keeping with his will. And by God's grace, Creek Church, you're gonna take Kentucky. You're gonna put a campus and a church in every major city and every county of this state and it will never be the same. Why, because you're so great? No, and I think you're great. Because your pastor's so great? No, and I think he's pretty great too. One of the greatest pastors in America in my opinion. But the reason I believe you're going to succeed is not because you have a great pastor. It's not because you have a great church or you're great people. I believe you're going to succeed. Why? Because the church is a movement with unstoppable power. Why? Because Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. I'm telling you, he's alive. And if you're convinced, he empowers. It's beautiful. Let me show you just a little bit. Track with me and I'm, 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 done. I'm out of time. I got to go. Track with me. I got to catch a plane back to New York. Okay. I still right, so got a barbecue to go to tomorrow. You know, excited about that. Actually, it's funny. We call barbecue down here. And I'm from, I'm from here as I, or not here, but Atlanta, we call barbecue like, you know, pigs that take days to prepare, right? That's barbecue in New York. They call grilling hamburgers a barbecue. They're so confused. That's why I'm a missionary there. I've got to go teach them what real barbecue is. Like down here, it's not barbecue unless a fat man is sweating in it. Amen. Like that's when it's barbecue. Anyway, I get to go to a a cookout tomorrow that they're calling a barbecue. I don't know why I I didn't tell the first service that just, that's just for you. Track with me 30 AD, small group of terrified, cowardly men hiding in a dark room, afraid somebody is going to recognize them as a follower of Jesus. That's where we were 30 AD, this movement we're talking about. That's where it was handful of guys scared in a dark room, afraid of their own shadow. If you're with me, say, uh, huh, that's where we were. Okay. Today, today, one third of the world's population claims faith in Jesus Christ today. Caesar's dead. The temple's been destroyed, but Jesus is alive. How how do we, how, how do we go from a handful of guys in a dark, quiet room? to today, over one third of the world's population identify faith in Jesus Christ and he's worshiped on every continent of the planet. How's that happen? How's that happen? It happens because of this. You ready? Because the church is a movement with unstoppable power because Jesus is alive. The only way to explain it, only way to explain it, he actually rose from the dead. You say, where are we going, pastor? Okay. Well, here we go. 30 AD, a handful of guys in a dark room, one third of the planet today. Identify his of Jesus Christ. Caesar's dead, the temple's gone, Jesus still reigns. Where are we going? We're going to Revelation chapter seven. That's where we're going. Revelation chapter seven, God gave John a vision into the future and here's what it looked like. Revelation seven, verse nine. After this I looked and behold a great number or multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and the peoples and the languages, standing before the throne and before the lamb. That's where we're headed. They're clothed in their white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. That's where we're headed. That's where we're headed. We're headed to a time and to a place when all the accountants in the world or the calculators and computers in the world cannot even give a numerical figure. the amount of people who have been saved by the grace of God's glory in Jesus Christ of Nazareth that's where we're headed It's nice now, I'm thrilled to say over two billion people on the planet follow Jesus. That's great, fantastic. But I am excited even more so to where we're going. We're going to a place where the mass of the church, the people who have been redeemed, the saved, the the redeemed, the the, the choir, the heavenly representation is gonna include people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, every language, and it's gonna number so many that there's not a calculator or an accountant on the planet that could possibly count. That's where we're headed. How do we get there? We get there because the church is a movement with unstoppable power because Jesus is alive. And I believe we're going to get there together. I believe as you and I, you in Kentucky and me in New York, as we're faithful to make disciples and multiply churches, and we're faithful to look our attention toward the nations, I believe that as we're faithful to obey and follow Jesus, that he's going to use us to build his church against which the gates of hell will never prevail. And we get the privilege to be a part of it. But it all comes back to this, you ready? Are you convinced that Jesus is alive? Are you convinced that Jesus is alive? Because if you are, he will empower you to take Kentucky for his glory. And he will empower us to touch New York for his glory. Because for the convinced, he empowers. Would you pray with me? Heads bowed, eyes closed. Father, in Jesus' name, I thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to challenge this dear and incredible and amazing church that I so, so, so deeply respect. God, I pray that you've used this message in some small way to inspire confidence and encouragement and hope into your people here at the Creek Church in this part of the world. God, I believe there are those in our room right now that are confused, and Lord, if they're confused, I pray that your son Jesus would draw near, draw near draw near and become present in their life. And God, for those that are confused, that they would answer yes to the question, are you willing? Are you willing? Are you willing to hear about what Jesus has done for you? Are you willing to consider the fact that Jesus is alive? Are you willing to to wrestle with this person called Jesus? Lord, if they're willing, I believe with all my heart you'll clarify. So Lord, I pray that you'd lead us to be a room full of people who are completely convinced that Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, nothing is impossible with you. Because Jesus is alive, the church is a a movement with unstoppable power. Father, I pray that you'd use your gospel and the resurrection of your son to motivate us and mobilize us in the way you did that early church. That we'd go everywhere telling everyone we meet that you've done something special in sending your son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise again from the dead. Lord, use us to be a part of advancing this movement in our generation for your glory and the good of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.